Okay. Let's um let's uh, let's bring this back. If you have your Bibles this morning and you'd like to follow the passage I'm going to read, it's from Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through to uh, chapter 12, verse 9. We're going to begin a new series this morning, I'll get into that in a minute, but let me just read the scripture to you and then we'll go from there. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans and the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, and I will curse all the peoples on earth, and will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the great tree of Moriah and Seshem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills of Bethel and pitched his tent. And from Bethel... On the west and Ayo on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards Negev. We'll begin this series on Abraham as a church this week, and uh, we're going to be looking at his life, the narrative of his life, and trying to understand just a little bit more about this character because. To understand about world civilization, you need to understand really about Abraham, or Abraham, as he's known. To get over the, the difficulty with Abraham and Abraham, just to say, Abraham means father or daddy, and Abraham basically means big daddy. So the two are interchangeable. You do not have to worry about getting one right at a particular stage. It doesn't really matter. We'll get into that a little bit later on, but just so as you know, if I slip up, then don't worry about it if that's okay. But to understand civilization, really, you need to understand this story because of the three great world faiths, of the three most significant faiths in the world, of Judaism, of Christianity, of Islam, Abraham is the founding father. He is, if you like, the father to those faiths. 
And Abraham, you see, Abraham, how do I say this? Life didn't just happen to Abraham. Abraham happened to life. He was a great man. He didn't just go with the flow of events. You see, we understand in our society, in our cultural context, that um, if you like, understanding one God or monotheism, we understand that worshipping one God is the norm. In his culture, at his time, there were many gods. And he stood against that idea uniquely at his time. He stood against his family. He stood against the society he was living in. He stood against the social pressures of the world around him. He was a great man. But what made him great? I hear you ask. What, what was great about Abraham? Because actually there was nothing, humanly speaking, that was great. And we'll come on to that in a minute. Today, I guess we might call Abraham, if you're looking at his greatness, we might call him a man of vision or a man of, yeah, a man of vision, I guess you could say. But that wasn't really what made him great. What made Abraham great was the call of God on his life. And this is the thing I'd like to talk to you about this morning. What makes you special and distinctive is the call of God on your life. The call of God is what makes you a Christian. You're not a Christian unless you embrace the call. It's what shapes your life distinctively. It's what makes it a Christian life. And it's your answering, your hearing, your embracing of that call that changes things. So this morning, briefly, I'm going to talk about three things. A good old-fashioned three-point sermon, sort of. I'm going to talk about, one, the power of the call. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the nature of the call. And thirdly, just how we can receive this call. So let's begin this morning. So I started deliberately in chapter 11 this morning, and it's important that we understand because this is a significant point in human history we reach in chapter 11, 12 of Genesis. The whole of the first part of Genesis, from 1 to 11, basically there's this downward spiral of humanity. It goes from the garden of this relationship with God, and it gradually shifts downwards into violence and depravity, just awfulness, apart from we're told in Genesis 4 of one family, or one family line if you like, and that's the, the family of Seth. And the family of Seth, it says that they, they, they were involved still, I think it, calls it, it says they called on the name of the Lord, which basically is a Hebrewism for they worshipped God. But there's one family line that still holds true, the rest of humanity is heading in this grim direction. In Seth's family alone, the knowledge of God was held, was passed on, was, was held faithfully. But in this chapter, we see the account of Terah. It brings us to a poignant point where this is the end of the line because 
the verses tells us something really quite disastrous. First of all, the word Torah, the father in this, means moon. And Ur of the Chauris was the center of lunar worship within those nations at that time. And so we understand from this that the last family, the family who was still holding true to the one true God, had begun, or were, if you like, worshipping idols. The one family who understood how the world was created, who understood who created it, and how it was supposed to be, had lost sight, had lost the understanding somewhere along the lines. And for those of you who maybe are trying to work out what I'm saying, at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, it does say, it says, your forefathers, Abraham and Terah and Nahor, lived beyond the river and they worshipped other gods. This was the state that humanity had got to. In effect, there wasn't much hope left. Spiritually, if you like, the last candle had just flickered out. The last family had gone. And it also says, it says that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. So not only has the family line come to an end spiritually, this line of Seth, this one heart, but they've come to an end physically as well. Walter Brueggemann, in his brilliant, um, his brilliant book of regards to the, the, the whole of Abraham's story, says, you know, that the symbol of Sarah, Sarah's barrenness is a symbol of hopelessness, a metaphor for hopelessness and death. Not only spiritually were these people dying, but also they were, there was going to be no more of them. No foreseeable future, no future. The whole of the human race, I can't emphasize this enough, the whole of the human race, it says, is telling us, is coming to a really bad end. And then God speaks. And as God speaks, it appears there's hope again. This is the power of the call. Let me get this down to earth a little bit because that's quite big and out there. The call of the God, and I'm going to describe it in two ways, is absolutely necessary and is absolutely gracious. Now, Abraham's family was, if you like, the best family left on earth. I don't know how about you feel about your family this morning, your family line. You might be proud of it. You may not. But this family was seen as the family. I have three children. Most of you will know them. Two boys and a young lady. They were raised amongst you here at King's, which is, I think is a good church, amongst nice people and in a good home. And my wife and I tried hard to bring them up right and to teach them the ways of God and to show them Jesus and what he looks like and who he is and try to explain to them and try to get them to understand. But here's the thing. Unless each one of them hears the call of God personally, if the, unless the call of God comes to them personally, comes into their life, disturbs them, convicts them, humbles them, shakes them up, then they're just going to be very nice idolaters like Abraham. It doesn't matter 
you see, how good your family is. It doesn't matter how nice your family is. Everybody, unless they hear the call of God, tends to take something created and worship it. Now hopefully my children, well, my children will be nice because I'm nice, (laughs) generally. And my children, they're going to be moral in their own way because I'm moral. And they might even be religious. But unless God interrupts their life, they're going to live for their careers, their family, their pastime or something else. But they're not going to live for God. Now, by the way, I'm not saying this to get at my kids this morning and you don't need to send them this tape or anything like that. That would be bad. Of course, I'm concerned about their spirituality, but also I trust that the Lord is as well. I'm not unloading on you or anything else, but I'm telling you this because in Genesis 1, we have this, the line of Cain, all the bad people, the line of Seth, all the good people. The nice people, they're the godly ones. The the bad people, they're the unholy ones. See, it doesn't matter about the family line unless they hear the call of God, spiritual death or sleeping comes. So the call of God has got to come and it's got to disturb you personally. It's got to disrupt you. It's absolutely necessary. But here's the thing. It's absolutely gracious. See, Abraham, he's not, he's not a good guy. He's not a faithful man. The call comes to Abraham because he's unqualified. And this is really important to understand. The call of God is an absolute act of grace. It doesn't come because you're qualified. You qualify because it's come. You see, if I needed at the church here, I'm going to think of something, a computer programmer, I'd call up a computer programmer because he can do what I need him to do and because he or she is qualified then they would do the job right. As a human being, you can't get the qualifications to be fitting of the call of God. But when the call of God comes, it qualifies you to follow that call, to respond to that call. It qualifies you, if you like, for service in the kingdom of God. There's a a really old film. I was encouraged to watch it recently um, by somebody. And um, I sat through it. I endured it, to be honest with you. Some of you will remember this film. Anyone remember this film? Beckett, 1964. It's... um, 
Peter O'Toole and uh, Richard Burton, I think the two characters were. And it's a story, it's a story, uh, it happened, didn't it? 1170 AD, Henry II. Basically, it's a story, there's Richard Burton and Peter, Peter O'Toole is Henry II and he's a, um, he's an okay king, he's not the best king. And uh, he's got a mate, Richard, who's part of the clergy. But basically, they're drinking buddies. Richard doesn't take too seriously his ministry. And uh, it's a nice relationship, and they have a good time together. And pretty much, Richard doesn't comment too much, or Thomas Beckett, as his character, doesn't comment too much on his behavior. And they get along great. And then one day, the archbishop dies, and um, he thinks, or the Henry thinks, I've got a great idea. This will, sh- this will save the, uh, well, this will solve church and state relations. I'll make, ri- I'll make um, Thomas archbishop. He won't speak into my life or call me to account. We're drinking buddies. It'll all be fine. It'll all be great. The church and the state will get on like never before. It'll all be good. And so he appoints him. But what happens is, in that appointment, somehow... The call of God resonates in Thomas's life. And somehow, this unqualified scoundrel, really, gets convicted by God. And in the midst of this story, we see this transformation. And suddenly, he starts to hold Henry to account. And he starts to speak truth. And he starts to say, no, no longer will you do that. The church does not agree with that. That can't happen anymore. That can't happen anymore. And there's this dramatic scene at the end of the film where Peter O'Toole, King Henry, he he gets his knights around him. And he doesn't actually say it himself. He's too cowardly to say it. But he says something like, oh, who would rid me of this man? Just throws it out there to these keen, rather keen knights. And of course, the keen knights run off. And they go to the church. And there's this dramatic scene. And you see, you see Thomas, who now is full of the call of God. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen. And his, his words, as, as they approach up the steps, and it's, it's worth watching. It's, it's interesting. He says, poor Henry. Poor Henry. He doesn't know what he does. call of God on his life transforms this man, this unqualified man into something else. Second thing I said we're going to talk about is the nature of this call. A lot of you say, well, this seems a very powerful call, but actually, what is it? And what do you have to do? I'm not going to be Archbishop. Well, in verse 12, if you look at your scripture there, there's a little passage where it says, get out. Get out from your country. In the King James Version, there is a few more words there. It says, get thee out, which actually is nearer the translation, I understand, because there are actually two, there are two Hebrew words there. Get thee out, or get yourself out, or get out of yourself, or go from yourself, you could say. Leave. 
go. And yet in verse 31, and this is the reason why that's there. In verse 31, there's this little word, but. And it says a whole lot about the group. You can see this in the text. Terah and Nahor and Abraham, they all set out for Cana. But they stopped in Haran. And they settled down. They stopped. We see Abraham having this conversation with God. And he's saying, God, you know... We've come halfway, me and the family, and uh, dad and everybody else, they really like it here. It's nice, and um, actually we don't want to go any further. Decided to stay, and they're done, and uh, we're all good, thank you very much. And what does God say? He says, well, leave them behind go, get out, get out of yourself, get thee out, go, leave. What does that feel like to you this morning? See, some of us, we like to come to church because we've come to church all our lives as part of our family thing, that's what we do. And if we're if we, were, if we were Italian this morning, perhaps we'd go to a Roman Catholic church, and that's part of our family, that's part of our... And perhaps if we were black and we've come from a Pentecostal background, we go to church and we sing songs this morning, and it's all good and it's all lovely. And, but being part of the environment, or being part culturally part of you, just faith and nice religiousness, isn't really what it's about. The question is, have you met God for yourself? Have you encountered him yourself? Have you gotten out of yourself? Have you let him penetrate you as an individual? Have you made a personal commitment? And if you have, and if you have, then your life has got to be one of faith. And if that's the case, it's going to be volitionally radical. And what I mean by that is, it's got to be, well, you see, at the heart of it, there's, the heart is the core of it. And the heart has to surrender to the will of God. And in this place, you'll notice that at the end of the text in the first sentence, he says, go, get out, go, leave, and I will show you, I will show you where you're going to end up. Now, this is hard for us. There's no postcode. There's no sat-nav address. There's no location on a map. There's no indication of where that might be. God says, let's go on a journey. And when we get there, I'll let you know. And of course, this is how we are. People say this to me all the time. I like the idea of becoming a Christian, but... Does it mean I'll have to give up this relationship? Or will I still be able to live this material lifestyle? Or will I have to stop doing this? Or will I have to stop this? And will I have to start this? And will I have to do this at this time? And when I was first in the job, and this is, I've been in this job 10 years now, which seems unbelievable, but I spent a lot of time trying to answer those questions for people. 
try to say, oh, well, you, you might have to, you, you could. You know. But I came to realize that that's just wrong because actually, when you say I'll get out, if you show me exactly where you're taking me, or I'll, I'll go if you tell me exactly what the terms of the arrangement are, or I'll, I'll do that, Lord, but I need, to, I need some assurances first. I need to know in the long run where we're, where we're headed. But what that does, that puts you still in the driving seat. You're still the boss. You're still the one in charge. You're still the one on the throne. You're still the one calling the shots. I'm happy to go if I know where I'm going. But it kind of makes sense to us, doesn't it? seems like a sensible thing. But in the life of Abraham, we see this. God says to Abraham, he says, get out. And Abraham says to, says to God, where, God, where do I go? And he says, I'll tell you later. Now just go. And then he says to Abraham, I'll give you a son. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll show you later. Now just trust and finally he says, he says, go, go to the top of the mountain and, and put your son to death. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll show you later. Just climb. Just climb. And that's Christianity. That's, that's the core. You know, this last week they released a film about J.R. Tolkien. And um, it's an unofficial film, and I think the family are particularly happy. It's a story of his life. And many of you are familiar with the two, the two big books, if you like, or the four, depending on how you look at it. There's, there's The Hobbit, and then there's this trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And they've made films out of both of those recently, and they really dragged the Hobbit films down, didn't they, over three? It's a small book, about 250 pages, and they managed to drag it over three films. But a lot of people have said to me, oh, it's really disappointing, the Hobbit films. It's just not that same mm, to it. It's just not that same depth to it. And I was reading some stuff, and people were trying to understand why. And one person said this, which I think is really interesting. He said, of course, you have to remember... The Hobbit is just an adventure. It's a there and back again story. It might be fun, it might be exciting for a little while, but then you can put it down and you can come back. The Lord of the Rings is not like that. The Lord of the Rings is a quest. It's a quest. And a quest is different. See, it comes to you, and if you take up the challenge, you'll never be the same again. You never really come back from a quest. It's life-changing at a fundamental level. You never see life the same again. You, somehow it's bigger, a quest. There's a sense of requirement. There's a sense of responsibility, of importance, of meaning. On the one level, it's terrifying. And on another level, there's nothing else that quite carries the ultimate meaning, ultimate meaning and purpose like it. You will never recover from a quest. 
Now in the context, I know you can maybe interchange the words, but in the context I'm using it this morning, the Christian life is not an adventure. The Christian life is a quest. God says, get out. You're going to be radically changed. Don't ask me what I'm going to do and if it will fit with your agenda. I'm giving you a whole new agenda. Hebrews 11 verse 8, the writer summarized like this. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. See, the I will if, the I will if it fits in statements, they don't come into the Christian vocabulary when we're just talking about the call of God. It's volitionally radical, the call, and it's missionally radical. Look at this, verse 2, verse 12, verse 2, this is really interesting. I will bless you. Why? Why? So that you may be a blessing. Because through you, all the families of this world will be blessed. See, to become a Christian is to no longer make decisions on the basis of how it will bless yourself, or how it will be good for you, or how it will feel nice for you. The call is to be a blessing. I'd even go as far as to say this, if you seek to be blessed, you'll be empty, but if you seek to bless others you will be richly blessed. You will. Some of you in this room can testify to that today. If you live for the blessings of others, God promises, I will fill you up. I will fill you up, he says. See, God blesses you that you might be a blessing. But you've got to get out. And you've got to be the blessing. What does it mean for you personally today? Well, it can mean different things for different people right now. Being out of your comfort zone means different things for different, out of our family's surroundings. Perhaps serving in a way that we prefer not to. Perhaps those helping those whose lives we don't agree with. Or maybe fighting for justice for, for those that are struggling. Or just praying for those who for a number of reasons can't pray. I don't know what it is this morning, but for each one of us, there is a call to be a blessing. Now I know that sounds really big and really huge and quite a challenge. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, how on earth do I do that? How do I earth do I know that I'm doing that. Abraham had all these promises from God. But there was one promise that it all hinged on, if you like. One promise that facilitated all the promises. You see, he was going to be a father to nations. He was going to bless nations but in order to do that, first of all, he had to have an offspring. He was going to have a land full of people, but first he had to have a son. 
He was going to have a great name. He was going to bless all the peoples of the earth. But first, he had to have a son. And everything came down to that. Sarah was barren. Abraham was old. And that means the son was going to be this act of just miraculous grace. Here's what God says. He says, Abraham, I'm calling you. You can't qualify for this. You just have to live in faith in the Son. You have to live with faith in the Son. And if you live in that promise, everything else will come. And it's the same for us. And here's what I mean. Look at Jesus. He got out. He had a call. He was told to leave his father's house. He was told to leave this this ultimate house of security and safety. And he left. Why did he leave? To be a blessing. To be the ultimate blessing. The blessing who you and me and millions of others rely on. And he went into the abyss. And he became homeless. And he became fatherless so that he might be a blessing. So that we could be adopted into his family. So that we could know the ultimate love. And if we trust in the Son of God, like Abraham trusted in this Son from God, God says you'll be able to be a blessing. You'll be able to be a blessing. You'll have purpose. And in that quest for fulfillment and meaning, You'll find more than you counted on. And if you say this morning, you'll never be that, I'll never be able to do the things that, all the things that Paul says I've got to do, all the things that feels like God. It's not more complicated than just trusting, pressing your faith in the Son and being obedient to His voice and His leading in your life. As we look at this story of Abraham over these next few weeks, we'll see this concept, this idea, repeatedly, repeatedly being put before us. Christ, trust in him. The Son is your hope, trust in him. Jesus is your hope, trust, trust, trust in him. Because he's been beyond wherever you will ever have to go. Because he loves us. Let the call of God, final thing, let the call of God come into your life. Listen to it. Surrender to it. It will qualify you for a journey beyond your dreams.
you will be a blessing if you let it work in your life. And it will make you great. We all want to be great, don't we? We'd love to be great. Jesus can make you great. We're going to pray for somebody this morning who's responded to the call here within the the church for a a particular role within the church. Simon Stringer, he's going to come up now. And um, we're going to pray for him. We're going to lay hands on him and there's an eldership. Simon's responded to this call. He's stepping out in faith. And Simon is going to be leading the group of people and who meet here on a Wednesday who are, I'm still trying to find the PC word for this, older in years. More than 55, Simon? Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. And uh, we just want to bless Simon. We want to honor Simon this morning, but we also want to recognize the call that God has placed on his life, we believe, for this season. And we want to pray into that. We want to bless that. We want to... We just want to encourage that. Simon, you, you believe you've heard from the Lord on this as yeah. well, don't you? Let me That's just... Right. There you go, buddy. Thank you, Paul. Uh, God really spoke to me and challenged me last weekend. Uh, and I believe this is linked to this, uh, this new phase and stage that um, I'm in at life at the moment. Um, on Sunday evening, we had a, a time of, of uh, worship here that Phil led. Um, and um, Paul shared something uh, which really resonated in my, in my heart. Um, he, he spoke about how the fact that we can sometimes be going to and looking in the old wells, the old places where we've uh, sought water in the past, um, and that maybe sometimes these, these wells may, uh, may dry up and may disappear. And we're encouraged that uh, there are to be new wells um, and, and I believe, uh, for me in my life at the moment, uh, there are new wells from which to draw water. Um, I believe that's for me, but I also believe there may be others in this room today for whom that is relevant. Um, my mind also went back to um, Sunday morning and the scripture that we had from uh, John um, chapter 4. And of course, also there, uh, we see Jesus um, going to a well. Um, and that was a well which was perhaps outside Jesus' comfort zone because it was a Sumerian well. He'd probably been to wells in, in Israel uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of times in his life. But this was a special new well, and this was uh, part of um, what God was challenging him to do. So for me, um, it's about um, going to these new wells. And I, I believe that that's the picture that God's given for me for this time in my life. Tremendous. So I'm going to um, ask the, the elders, wherever they are around, to uh, Simon's going to come down here and we're going to lay hands on Simon. But this morning as well, as Phil picks up and Rachel pick up the worship, if there's anybody else this morning that would like to respond to, to the, what I've said this morning, if you'd like to someone to stand with you and pray for strength as you, res- you respond to the, the call of the Lord, then that would be fantastic. Laurie, where's Laurie? Laurie, just want to come up. She had a word earlier this morning, and thought it'd be appropriate to share it now, just as we as we close together. Um, I had a word uh, while we were singing. Um, 